Section 48 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in February 2020. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 16. The Future of the Cities. Part 1. Introduction We believe action of the kind outlined in preceding pages can contribute substantially to control of disorders in the near future. But there should be no mistake about the long run. The underlying forces continue to gain momentum. The most basic of these is the accelerating segregation of low-income, disadvantaged Negroes within the ghettos of the largest American cities. By 1985, the 12.1 million Negroes segregated within central cities today will have grown to approximately 20.3 million, an increase of 68%. Prospects for domestic peace and for the quality of American life are linked directly to the future of these cities. Two critical questions must be confronted. Where do present trends now lead? What choices are open to us? The key trends. Negro population growth. The size of the Negro population in central cities is closely related to total national Negro population growth. In the past 16 years, about 98% of this growth has occurred within metropolitan areas and 86% in the central cities of those areas. A conservative projection of national Negro population growth indicates continued rapid increases. For the period 1966 to 1985, it will rise to a total of 30.7 million, gaining an average of 484,000 a year, or 7.6% more than the increase in each year from 1960 to 1966. Central Cities Further Negro population growth in central cities depends upon two key factors, immigration from outside metropolitan areas and patterns of Negro settlement within metropolitan areas. From 1960 to 1966, the Negro population of all central cities rose 2.4 million, 88.9% of total national Negro population growth. We estimate that natural growth accounted for 1.4 million, or 58% of this increase, and in-migration accounted for 1 million, or 42%. As of 1966, the Negro population in all central cities totaled 12.1 million. By 1985, we have estimated that it will rise 68% to 20.3 million. We believe that natural growth will account for 5.2 million of this increase and in-migration for 3 million. Without significant Negro out-migration, then, the combined Negro populations of central cities will continue to grow by an average of 274,000 a year through 1985, even if no further in-migration occurs. Growth projected on the basis of natural increase and in-migration 
would raise the proportion of negroes to whites in central cities by 1985 from the present 20.7 per cent to between an estimated 31 and 34.7 per cent largest central cities these however are national figures much faster increases will occur in the largest central cities where negro growth has been concentrated in the past two decades washington dc gary and newark are already over half negro a continuation of recent trends would cause the following ten major cities to become over fifty percent negro by the indicated dates new orleans nineteen seventy one richmond nineteen seventy one Baltimore, 1972, Jacksonville, 1972, Cleveland, 1975, St. Louis, 1978, Detroit, 1979, Philadelphia, 1981, Oakland, 1983, Chicago, 1984. These cities, plus Washington, D.C., now over 66% Negro, and Newark contained 12.6 million people in 1960, or 22% of the total population of all 224 American central cities. All 13 cities undoubtedly will have Negro majorities by 1985, and the suburbs ringing them will remain largely all-white, unless there are major changes in Negro fertility rates, in migration, settlement patterns, or public policy. Experience indicates that Negro school enrollment in these and other cities will exceed 50% long before the total population reaches that mark. In fact, Negro students already comprise more than a majority in the public elementary schools of 12 of the 13 cities mentioned above. This occurs because the Negro population in central cities is much younger and because a much higher proportion of white children attend private schools. For example, St. Louis's population was about 36% Negro in 1965. Its public elementary school enrollment was 63% Negro. If present trends continue, many cities in addition to those listed above will have Negro school majorities by 1985, probably including Dallas, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Harrisburg, Louisville, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Missouri, Hartford, New Haven. Thus, continued concentration of future Negro population growth in large central cities will produce significant changes in those cities over the next 20 years. Unless there are sharp changes in the factors influencing Negro settlement patterns within metropolitan areas, there is little doubt that the trend toward Negro majorities will continue. Even a complete cessation of net Negro in-migration to central cities would merely postpone this result for a few years. Growth of the Young Negro Population we estimate that the nation's white population will grow 16.6 million, or 9.6%, from 1966 to 1975, and the Negro population 3.8 million, or 17.7%, in the same period. 
the negro age group from fifteen to twenty-four years of age however will grow much faster than either the negro population as a whole or the white population in the same age group from nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy five the total number of negroes in this age group nationally will rise one point six million or forty point one per cent the white population aged fifteen to twenty four will rise six point six million or twenty three point five per cent this rapid increase in the young negro population has important implications for the country this group has the highest unemployment rate in the nation commits a relatively high proportion of all crimes and plays the most significant role in civil disorders by the same token it is a great reservoir of underused human resources which are vital to the nation the location of new jobs most new employment opportunities do not occur in central cities near all negro neighborhoods they are being created in suburbs and outlying areas and this trend is likely to continue indefinitely new office buildings have risen in the downtowns of large cities often near all negro areas but the outflow of manufacturing and retailing facilities normally offsets this addition significantly and in many cases has caused a net loss of jobs in central cities while the new white-collar jobs are often not available to ghetto residents providing employment for the swelling negro ghetto population will require society to link these potential workers more closely with job locations this can be done in three ways by developing incentives to industry to create new employment centers near negro residential areas by opening suburban residential areas to negroes and encouraging them to move closer to industrial centers or by creating better transportation between ghetto neighborhoods and new job locations all three involve large public outlays the first method creating new industries in or near the ghetto is not likely to occur without government subsidies on a scale which convinces private firms that it will pay them to face the problems involved the second method opening up suburban areas to negro occupancy obviously requires effective fair housing laws it will also require an extensive program of federally aided low-cost housing in many suburban areas the third approach improved transportation linking ghettos and suburbs has received little attention from city planners and municipal officials a few demonstration projects show promise but carrying them out on a large scale will be very costly although a high proportion of new jobs will be located in suburbs there are still millions of jobs in central cities turnover in those jobs alone can open up a great many potential positions for negro central city residents if employers cease racial discrimination in their hiring and promotion practices nevertheless as the total number of negro central city job seekers continues to rise the need to link them with emerging new employment in the suburbs will become increasingly urgent the increasing cost of municipal services local governments have had to bear a particularly heavy financial burden in the two decades since the end of world war ii 
all U.S. cities are highly dependent upon property taxes that are relatively unresponsive to changes in income. Consequently, growing municipalities have been hard-pressed for adequate revenues to meet rising demands for services generated by population increase. On the other hand, stable or declining cities have not only been faced with steady cost increases, but also with a slow-growing, or even declining, tax base. As a result of the population shifts of the post-war period, concentrating the middle class in residential suburbs while leaving the poor in the central cities, the increasing burden of municipal taxes frequently falls upon that part of the urban population least able to pay them. Increasing concentrations of urban growth have called forth greater expenditures for every kind of public service – education, health, police protection, fire protection, parks, sanitation, etc. These expenditures have strikingly outpaced tax revenues. The story is summed up below. Local Government Revenues, Expenditures and Debts In Billions of Dollars Revenues 1950 11.7 1966 41.5 Increase 29.8 .8. Expenditures 1950 17.0 1966 60.7 Increase 43.7 Debt Outstanding 1950-18.8 1966, 77.5. Increase, 58.7. Despite the growth of federal assistance to urban areas under various grant-in-aid programs, the fiscal plight of many cities is likely to grow even more serious in the future. Local expenditures inevitably will continue to rise steeply as a result of several factors, including the difficulty of increasing productivity in the predominantly service activities of local governments, together with the rapid technologically induced increases in productivity in other economic sectors. Traditionally, individual productivity has risen faster in the manufacturing, mining, construction and agricultural sectors than in those involving personal services. However, since all sectors compete with each other for talent and personnel, wages and salaries in the service-dominated sectors generally must keep up with those in the capital-dominated sectors. Since productivity in manufacturing has risen about 2.5% per year, compounded over many decades, and even faster in agriculture, the basis for setting costs in the service-dominated sectors has gone up too. In the post-war period, costs of the same units of output have increased very rapidly in certain key activities of local government. For example, education is the single biggest form of expenditure by local governments, including school districts, accounting for over 40% of their outlays. From 1947 to 1967, Costs per pupil day in U.S. public schools rose at a rate of 6.7% per year compounded, only slightly less than doubling every 10 years. This major cost item is likely to keep on raising rapidly in the future, 
along with other government services like police, fire, and welfare activities. Some increases in productivity may occur in these fields, and some economies may be achieved through use of assistance such as police and teachers' aids. Nevertheless, the need to keep pace with private sector wage scales will force local government costs to rise sharply. This and other future cost increases are important to future relations between central cities and suburbs. Rising costs will inevitably force central cities to demand more and more assistance from the federal government. But the federal government can obtain such funds through the income tax only from other parts of the economy. Suburban governments are, meanwhile, experiencing the same cost increases along with the rising resentment of their constituents. Choices for the Future the complexity of American society offers many choices for the future of relations between central cities and suburbs, and patterns of white and negro settlement in metropolitan areas. For practical purposes, however, we see two fundamental questions. Should future negro population growth be concentrated in central cities, as in the past 20 years, thereby forcing Negro and white populations to become even more residentially segregated? Should society provide greatly increased special assistance to Negroes and other relatively disadvantaged population groups? For purposes of analysis, the Commission has defined three basic choices for the future embodying specific answers to these questions. The Present Policies Choice under this course, the nation would maintain approximately the share of resources now being allocated to programs of assistance for the poor, unemployed, and disadvantaged. These programs are likely to grow, given continuing economic growth and rising federal revenues, but they will not grow fast enough to stop, yet alone reverse, the already deteriorating quality of life in central city ghettos. This choice carries the highest ultimate price, as we will point out. The Enrichment Choice Under this course, the nation would seek to offset the effects of continued Negro segregation and deprivation in large city ghettos. The Enrichment Choice would aim at creating dramatic improvements in the quality of life in disadvantaged central city neighborhoods, both white and Negro. It would require marked increases in federal spending for education, housing, employment, job training, and social services. The enrichment choice would seek to lift poor Negroes and whites above poverty status and thereby give them the capacity to enter the mainstream of American life. But it would not, at least for many years, appreciably affect either the increasing concentration of Negroes in the ghetto or racial segregation in residential areas outside the ghetto. The Integration Choice This choice would be aimed at reversing the movement of the country toward two societies, separate and unequal. The Integration Choice, like the Enrichment Choice, would call for large-scale improvement in the quality of ghetto life. 
but it would also involve both creating strong incentives for negro movement out of central city ghettos and enlarging freedom of choice concerning housing employment and schools the result would fall considerably short of full integration the experience of other ethnic groups indicates that some negro households would be scattered in largely white residential areas others probably a larger number would voluntarily cluster together in largely negro neighborhoods the integration choice would thus produce both integration and segregation but the segregation would be voluntary articulating these three choices plainly oversimplifies the possibilities open to the country we believe however that they encompass the basic issues issues which the american public must face if it is serious in its concern not only about civil disorder but the future of our democratic society the present policies choice powerful forces of social and political inertia are moving the country steadily along the course of existing policies toward a divided country this course may well involve changes in many social and economic programs but not enough to produce fundamental alterations in the key factors of negro concentration racial segregation and the lack of sufficient enrichment to arrest the decay of deprived neighborhoods some movement toward enrichment can be found in efforts to encourage industries to locate plants in central cities in increased federal expenditures for education in the important concepts embodied in the war of poverty and in the model cities program but congressional appropriations for even present federal programs have been so small that they fall short of effective enrichment as for challenging concentration and segregation a national commitment to this purpose has yet to develop of the three future courses we have defined the present policies choice the choice we are now making is the course with the most ominous consequences for our society the probability of future civil disorders we believe that the present policies choice would lead to a larger number of violent incidents of the kind that have stimulated recent major disorders first it does nothing to raise the hopes absorb the energies or constructively challenge the talents of the rapidly growing number of young negro men in central cities the proportion of unemployed or underemployed among them will remain very high these young men have contributed disproportionately to crime and violence in cities in the past and there is danger obviously that they will continue to do so second under these conditions a rising proportion of negroes in disadvantaged city areas might come to look upon the deprivation and segregation they suffer as proper justification for violent protest or for extending support to now isolated extremists who advocate civil disruption by guerrilla tactics more incidents would not necessarily mean more or worse riots for the near future there is substantial likelihood that even an increased number of incidents could be controlled before becoming major disorders if society undertakes to improve police and national guard forces so they can respond to potential disorders with more prompt and disciplined use of force.
in fact the likelihood of incidents mushrooming into major disorders would be only slightly higher in the near future under the present policy's choice than under the other two possible choices for no new policies or programs could possibly alter basic ghetto conditions immediately and the announcement of new programs under the other choices would immediately generate new expectations expectations inevitably increase faster than performance in the short run they might even increase the level of frustration in the long run however the present policy's choice risks a seriously greater probability of major disorders worse possibly than those already experienced if the negro population as a whole developed even stronger feelings of being wrongly penned in and discriminated against many of its members might come to support not only riots but the rebellion now being preached by only a handful large-scale violence followed by white retaliation could follow this spiral could quite conceivably lead to a kind of urban apartheid with semi-martial law in many major cities enforced residence of negroes in segregated areas and a drastic reduction in personal freedom for all americans particularly negroes the same distinction is applicable to the cost of the present policy's choice in the short run its costs at least its direct cash outlays would be far less than for the other choices social and economic programs likely to have significant lasting effect would require very substantial annual appropriations for many years their cost would far exceed the direct losses sustained in recent civil disorders property damage in all the disorders we investigated including Detroit and Newark, totaled less than $100 million. But it would be a tragic mistake to view the present policy's choice as cheap. Damage figures measure only a small part of the costs of civil disorder. They cannot measure the costs in terms of the lives lost, injuries suffered, minds and attitudes closed and frozen in prejudice, or the hidden costs of the profound disruption of entire cities ultimately moreover the economic and social costs of the present policy's choice will far surpass the cost of the alternatives the rising concentration of impoverished negroes and other minorities within the urban ghettos will constantly expand public expenditures for welfare law enforcement unemployment and other existing programs without arresting the decay of older city neighborhoods and the breeding of frustration and discontent. But the most significant item on the balance of accounts will remain largely invisible and incalculable, the toll in human values taken by continued poverty, segregation, and inequality of opportunity. End of section 48